Hey, good morning. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your heart for those who are poor and suffering. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you don't make a difference. You make the difference. And I sincerely mean that. Um, I want to just thank Jesus for changing my life. I wouldn't be here today without the sovereign one. I owe everything to him. He is as more real now as he has ever been. I also want to just go on record. They are not here, but I want to thank God for my family. I would not be here if it was not for uh, Allie, um, who I've been married to for almost 21 years, and our two kids, Leighton and Dallin. And so, you know, uh, our family is invested. Um, it's not always easy to be away from home maybe 200 days a year. It's not always easy to um, try to figure out how to live life, and it's certainly not always glamorous. It matters, but that doesn't mean it's always easy. I'm sure you can understand. And so I stand here thankful for my family, for Allie and our daughters, Leighton and Allen, who not only pray but support. So I just want to give honor to whom honor is due. And um, I'd love to connect with you. If the Lord communicates anything to you today to encourage you behind me, you know how to find me. Look me up and let me know what sticks out to you. Um, for those of you who at the end of um, our gathering time today, and you are compelled to support a child uh, through Feed One, I just want you to know that thanks to the generosity of Convoy of Hope, as well as Baker Books, um, for those of you who do support um, a child through Feed One, we will give you a complimentary copy of the book uh, entitled Grace in the Valley. It came out about five weeks ago. Um, I happen to write this book. God has breathed on it. He's used it uh, just in the short time it has been out to encourage a lot of people. And um, a year ago, um, I finished up a three-year journey of studying Psalm 23. Remember, it says that he makes me lie down in green pastures and goes on to tell us that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It is easy, if you're like me, to invert that. It is easy to walk through green pastures and lie down in the valley. But after investing about three years of just studying, spending a lot of time with rabbis in Israel and just trying to figure out exactly um, what was going on behind the scenes when David did not write the psalm, but he sang the psalm, um, I was just praying about who to publish the book with, if I could be candid with you. And last summer, I watched God perform a miracle. I watched God heal a girl who was born deaf. And the first thing she heard, it actually happened during a time of worship at the end of a gathering just like this. The first thing she heard was worship music. How many of you know that's pretty cool? And um, I can just assure you she did not remain calm. All right? And um, so I watched God heal a girl who was deaf. And then a week later, I found myself in the hospital room with my wife, Allie. And we were, as a family, uh, in the midst of the most horrific experience we've ever had. What should have been routine uh, became a significant trial for Allie. She became very sick. And um, she had a 48-hour window. It was touch or go. She would either live or die. She had a 48-hour window. And if I could just be vulnerable with you, I was in the hospital room at about 1 in the morning. Uh, remember, I'm the guy who has just devoted three years to studying a psalm that I'm sure some of us are familiar with. And this is a conversation I'm having with God in the hospital room. As my Bible is open and I am reading Psalm 23, though devoted to memory, how many of you know sometimes it's just important to read it? There's a difference between proximity, with, or proximity to God and intimacy with God. And oftentimes the dividing line is this thing called familiarity. Sometimes we become too familiar. 
with the sound of his voice. And sometimes I'm just intentional to make sure I read the words, although I know them. Sometimes we don't always know them. I'm talking to God. God, if you can heal the deaf girl, why are you not healing my wife? How many of you know that's real life? So, God, my, my wife may step into eternity, and if you can heal that girl, why, as I'm praying and fasting and crying out to you, is she not getting better? And rather than watching God supernaturally restore Allie, we watched her go on a six to seven month journey of restoration and healing. And I would submit to you that they are both equally as miraculous. That the sovereign one is just as involved when things happen instantaneously as when sometimes things happen in a time frame that maybe we are not accustomed to. And I realized something last summer uh, that the green pasture and the valley of the shadow of death actually are the same place. And that God prepares his table for us not in the green pasture but in the valley of the shadow of death, although it's only a shadow. And a shadow is an indicator that what lies just beyond is a tremendous bright light. The presence of a shadow is not indicative of the absence of God. The presence of a shadow is indicative that the light of the world draws near. And sometimes what we think is a spiritual attack is actually an invitation by God to feast in his presence. For he prepares a table in the valley. And if you support a child, those uh, that are left, you'll receive a copy of Grace in the Valley. And if we run out, they're obviously available everywhere you can find books around the world. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at a story. It is a true story. It really happened. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, it says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. If I could just pause. It talks about Jesus. Who is Jesus? We know that Jesus was a Hebrew male who spoke Aramaic, and yet his teachings are recorded originally in the Greek language. Jesus did not travel more than 100 miles from his hometown. Scholars tell us Jesus communicated on a sixth grade level. Others tell us he communicated on a third grade level, which is it, I'm really not sure. What I do know is that the one who spoke the universe into existence somehow took simple spiritual truth and packaged it in a language even a child could understand. For after all, if you go back to Matthew chapter 14, remember Jesus was looking at a multitude of individuals who are uh, literally in need of something to eat. They need food. And Jesus first approaches his disciples, those who were being educated by the master himself, and they couldn't figure it out. So God's strategy was to find a child. And so it was a little boy who brought five loaves of barley bread. Barley was the bread of the poor. So then, therefore, we know the child was not from an affluent family. The child was um, familiar with lack. Brought five loaves of barley bread and two small fish, and that is what the master used to feed the multitude. He communicated in a language even children could understand. We know that Jesus did not necessarily come to convert people to Christianity. He did not come to teach people what to believe. I would suggest he came to teach people how to believe. We know that Jesus came to invite uh, people like you and I to gaze into his eyes and catch a true reflection of who we really are. For after all, Jesus does not anoint who we pretend to be. He does not anoint who people perceive us to be. 
He simply breathes and anoints on who God created and destined us to be. We know that as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, your task is not to memorize Jesus. Your task is to become like him. When you look at the Gospels, there are 125 unique teaching incidents of Jesus, and 13 of them start with content, and the rest start with questions. Isn't it interesting that when God wanted to transition the world from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, rather than filling an arena with everyone and giving a coherent belief system, he simply asked questions. So we see that it is often the questions in life that tell us more than answers ever do. And questions isn't what you or I would expect from the one who claims to be the truth. He asked a lot of questions and he told an awful lot of stories. We call them parables. And Jesus did not come to make bad people into good people, according to Tim Keller. I would suggest he came to take spiritually dead people and cause them to come alive. That's who Jesus is. And I met Jesus when I was 17. As a young child, I knew that the spiritual world is very real. I was well aware that what you don't see is much more real than anything you ever do see. I was taught by those closest to me how to have conversations with demons. And so what started out as a fascination with religion and spirituality, I quickly found myself enmeshed in the occult and witchcraft and a lot of other things that frankly I will never discuss publicly. It's far more effective rather than talking about the darkness to fix our eyes on Jesus anyway. But I remember the first time I saw a chair screwed across the floor and the first time I watched a candle float off of the coffee table. I was fascinated with the unseen world and fascinated with what I experienced. And unfortunately, you can't have a conversation with demons very long before you find yourself going down a road you wish you would have never traveled down. And so I was at a very dark place. And you would have never known it because I was always a good student. I was always uh, a decent athlete and I didn't walk around wearing a black cape with vampire teeth hanging out of my mouth. But on the inside, I was spiritually dead and sitting in quiet desperation. You know, we live in a world with people who live in quiet desperation. You've heard about some of the children today. My task is not to convince you that what you do with Feed One matters. You already know that. My task is to remind you of how God accomplishes the never-ending task, which is the church. In eighth grade, I took a break from everything I was involved in for a variety of reasons, and um, I attended some religious classes, and that's when she dared to listen when the Holy Spirit uh, whispered to her heart. Uh, sometimes the loudest voices have no volume, and when God speaks, though often not voluminous, his voice always thunders and echoes, and God whispered to her in eighth grade as she walked down the hallway of our middle school, you see that young boy over there, pray for him. And the voice of God seemed to say something to the effect of, I have a call on his life. You're going to marry him one day. What she did not do is walk up to me in the hallway and say, guess what God just told me. <laughs> Instead, she did what Mary did. She treasured those things in her heart, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She went home. She actually told her mom, and thank God for a parent who was present. Thank God for a parent who dared to listen when their child had something to talk about. And for about three and a half years, her and her mom began to pray. 
when we went to high school, we went not only to different locations, we went down very different roads. And she attended a youth group and was a cheerleader. I went headfirst into uh, witchcraft and other things. And by the time I was a junior in high school, I was um, as far away from God as you can imagine. I was, uh, I remember one day I was abusing a drug called LSD, which causes you to hallucinate. And I was in my physics class. I had physics after lunch. And uh, so lunch hour was an opportunity to re-up on my drug abuse. And so we were dropping balls down ramps in physics class, calculating velocity. I don't know if you remember this, but if you're like me, you probably realize that once you graduate from high school, that's a skill you never use again. Unless you're one of the 0.2% of society that works at NASA, and thank God for the geeks who love velocity. But we're dropping balls down ramps, calculating velocity, and I was hallucinating, and my physics partner didn't spend time with people who abused LSD. I frankly did not spend time with people who did not, and so we had nothing in common. That meant we had a lot to talk about. And so I remember talking to him about religion. I always talked about religion. You know, Solomon is right when he writes in Ecclesiastes that God has written eternity on the hearts of men, and I will add women. Everybody's searching. And I remember asking, hey, are you religious? Do you believe in God? And how do you know if what you believe is true? Remember those experiences I had as a child. It, it was unequivocal. I knew that what you don't see is much more real than anything you do see. But I just had no idea. I had no idea who Jesus was. I didn't know the gospel. John 3.16, I thought it was something that people wrote on cardboard signs and held them up at football games. He invited me to church and I actually went. I remember going to a church. It certainly wasn't a place like this. Uh, where you walk in and you're greeted and everybody's smiling and a spirit of excellence is all over the place. We didn't have music like this. But nonetheless, I walked in and I remember leaving thinking, these people are crazy. I'm never going back. I actually heard somebody speak in tongues at that church and that didn't really bother me because there are demonic tongues. I was familiar with that already. But I remember thinking, the guy opened up a little black leather book and he talked out of it like he thought it was real. Remember, asked, what is that? It's a Bible. Huh. Thought, I'm never going back. You know, even though I walked away from an opportunity, I'm thankful that God never gives up on us. Maybe you can relate. In, in Genesis, it tells us that God spoke and the universe formed. When God created humanity, God did not speak. The text tells us God scooped up a mound of dirt and he breathed. God speaks galaxies into existence, but the mighty one saved his breath for you and for me. And when I was 17, it's as real now as ever before. Um, I remember I was in my bedroom on a Sunday night and uh, the effects of the drugs wore off. And I was just thinking about what is the right religion? What, what is the truth? And it's almost as if someone poked a hole in the sky and a little bit of love rained down in my room. I remember saying out loud, and it is a story for a believing believer. I remember saying, Jesus, you are who you say you are. And I, re I remember talking with Jesus for, for three days. And I said to my physics partner, hey, you know what? I'm coming back to church with you. Remember the thing that that guy who talked out of the black book asked people to do? He asked them to raise their hand and pray a prayer. 
think I need to do that. And so I went to church on a Wednesday night, probably the most dysfunctional youth service you can fathom in your life. I walked in wearing a tie-dye t-shirt with a big marijuana leaf right here on the chest. <laughs> you know, little side note, I just had a flashback of what I used to do on Sunday morning, Pastor. What I used to do after I met Jesus, I would go to church. Nobody told me you're not supposed to wear t-shirts with pot leaves on them. So I went to church with my pot shirt. I was a new believer, and I found out that in church, sometimes people lift their hands up. Some of you did that today, and I wasn't sure why we did that, and so I asked my pastor, and he said, well, the Bible says I want people everywhere to lift up holy hands unto the Lord. So I thought that's a good idea. So I decided I would lift one hand in the air, and I decided to flip my middle finger up and point it straight to the ground because I wanted one hand to honor God, and I wanted to finger the devil every single time I worship. So what do you... What do you do? What do you do when there's a kid with a pot leaf on his chest with his middle finger out giving the devil the bird on Sunday morning? That was me. You know, thankfully, an, an usher or a greeter didn't walk up and say, young man, people like you don't belong here. Instead, Sister Davis, probably the most conservative Pentecostal lady who's ever lived, walked up to me. She some, seemed to somehow walk through a, 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 a massive hair salon where Aquanet blew out of the garden hose. And I swear her hair never changed shape. And she walked up to me and just put her hand on me and said, you know what, Heath, I'll be your spiritual grandma. Nobody told me you're not supposed to do those things. They just loved me the way I was. And, and then over time, God used people to communicate to me a better way. Well, that was me. So anyway, I just had a flashback. I just figured I'd invite you into my psyche for a world, for a moment, okay? So I walk into this church service with my tie-dye T-shirt. And here's what I experienced. There were about 20 teenagers sitting in a circle. And that night, there was no sermon. There was no uh, worship set. The group of teenagers and a few adults were yelling at one another. They were screaming. People were crying. They were arguing. The police were there. One of the police officers' name was Willie. He used to search my car on the weekends. I knew him well, trust me. And so what I found out is a lady became angry with the pastor and made death threats against the pastor. And so they had to kick a family out of church. They excommunicated a family, a family that had two teenagers. So they're having this family meeting in the youth group explaining why they're never coming home. And that's when Heath walks in. And I'm sitting there. And at the end, my physics partner's dad, who was a volunteer, thank God for people who use the gifts and skills that God has given them and they simply serve. He was a volunteer youth leader. And at the end of that little time, said, if there's anyone here who wants to know if Jesus is real, raise your hand. And I was innocent enough to. I walked forward 10 feet. That's how big the youth room was. And I was supernaturally delivered of every single drug addiction. I was healed physically. And Jesus breathed life over my dead soul. I walked through the door of salvation, and that's when it began. I'm thankful for 24 years, thankful. That's who Jesus is. I just wanted to be clear. So when it says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now we're on the same page. And he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus. 
Others say Elijah, who is a prophet in the Old Testament. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want to talk to you about the rock. I want to talk to you about the church. Today, you've already heard so well from your pastor and from other leaders the need that exists in the world. You've already heard so well that one of the vehicles to meet that need is Feed One. Thank you again for your generosity. You've already participated. Some of you have gone. I hope all of you go next year. Many of you have been so generous to give. Thank you again. So I don't stand here today to tell you why. I think you already know the why. I stand here today to tell you how, to remind you of the how. Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. You can go there today. It is called the Golan Heights at the base of the mountains of Lebanon, the tallest peak, most notably Mount Hermon, about 9,000 feet above sea level. Jesus takes his disciples on what is to become a 32-mile round-trip journey. Caesarea Philippi was an interesting place. Its name comes from two words, Caesar and Philip. Josephus, a historian, tells us that a Roman leader named Caesar Augustus gave this portion of land to a king, King Herod. Herod had a son named Philip. So Caesarea Philippi, Caesar Philip, that's where the name comes from. But Caesarea Philippi had another name. You may not necessarily be familiar with this. It was called Banias or Paneas, P-A-N-E-A-S, named after a goat god named Pan. I found out in my research that Pan, the goat god, was, watch this, the god of goats. He was also the god over music. And Pan was the god over fear. That's where our word panic comes from. People from all over the region traveled to Panaeus to worship the goat god. And Jesus takes his adolescent followers to a place that would have made the rabbi ceremonially unclean, a place not worth going to. One of the most decrepit, malevolent, dark places on the planet. A place that would have been unsafe for children, a place that would have been unsafe for men and women alike. Jesus asks a simple question, who do people say that I am? And Peter's response is telling. He says, you are the Christ. Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, the Catholic interpretation of this verse goes this way, and I'm paraphrasing. Peter literally means rock. So because Peter responds to the question Christ poses, the Catholics would say that Peter, whose name means rock, who eventually will stand up during the Feast of Pentecost, it's recorded in Dr. Luke's narrative in Acts chapter 2, that when Peter stands up and communicates during that feast, that that, in essence, is when the church is born. The Catholic interpretation would be that Jesus is saying, you know what, Peter, you're the rock. You're, in, in essence, the first pope, and from you, uh, we will 
God will build the church. And I want to be clear, I think that there's some tremendous uh, value in that interpretation. Now, the Protestant interpretation is a bit different. Equally as so, I would say there is immense value in the Protestant interpretation. And Protestants believe that when Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, that Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. What is he saying? The Bible tells us Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. And it is on the rock of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ on the rock of that confession that the church will be, will be built. And I think there's value there as well. I would like just for our time today to offer a third interpretation. On the screen behind me is a picture of what is called the Grotto of Pan. Now to my right, you'll see the big hole. That's a cave. At the time that Jesus communicates uh, in Matthew 16, or what is recorded in Matthew 16, there is a freshwater spring that flowed out of the cave, and it actually fed the Jordan River. And it, in this cave, people from all over the region came to this grotto, and this is where they held lewd, immoral, wicked festivals to worship the goat god. And because of the different ages listening to this message, I will use wisdom, but let me just say that this would have been a place where the most horrific things you can fathom in your imagination, although I don't encourage you to try to fathom, this is where those things happened. Debauchery and immorality and wickedness, they painted the side of the cliff bright red with the blood of animals. Inside, and if you can see this, inside the, the side of the cliff, this is at the base of Mount Hermon, they put little idols and they danced and many of them uh, just under the, the influence of a mystical, supernatural, demonic trance, they would dance around and, and worship and kill things and do things with and to animals that are not worth repeating. And at the cave, there was a crack that went up to the top of the cliff, and that crack was known as the gate of hell. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to build a community of people. He calls it the church. That word church comes from a Greek and then a Roman political term. It meant the, the called out ones. People who were handpicked by a political leader, the Roman Caesars were known for this. The Caesars stood in front of the Senate and tried to make progress. That did not always um, deem productive. And so the Caesar handpicked senators from the assembly and invited them to meet with him in his private chamber. The king handpicked people to meet with him when no one else was around. They looked into the king's eyes. They heard the king's voice. They heard the king's heart. And then they were sent out to represent to the world what they heard from their king. The word is ecclesia. That's the word Jesus uses when he says church. The church is a group of people around the world who spend time with their king. And they gaze into the king's eyes where they catch a true reflection of who they really are. They listen to their king's voice and they become acquainted with the king's heart. And then the king sends them out to 
share and demonstrate to the world what they've experienced with their king. Now we understand why the king said, go into all the world and preach the what? Preach what you've heard me share and even more so demonstrate. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. What is he saying? He's saying, you as a member of this community called the church, you have been handpicked and called out from the life you were living. And by spending time with me, now you can reproduce my heart to people who are in the desperate, dry, dark places like Pan. Jesus says, I'm building a community of people around the world who, if they will simply get to know my heart on these rocks, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The most important organization in the world is not the UN. It is not an NGO. It is not a Fortune 500 company. It is not a business. It is not a philanthropic arm. It is not an athletic team. It is a community of ordinary people like you and like me. And we exist in India. We exist in the Philippines. We exist in Sri Lanka. We exist in Haiti where many of you are going to go next year. We exist right here in Lufkin, Texas. It is is a community of people known as the church who have become acquainted with the king's heart and we understand that if you preach a gospel apart from justice and compassion, you preach a gospel Jesus never preached. Jesus did not just heal the leper, he touched the leper. Jesus did not just raise Lazarus from the dead. He chose to weep, knowing full well there would be a resurrection, and yet he still chose to cry. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, who knew the end of the story, would pause and cry? He didn't just heal the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He looked at her, and he used a term of endearment. He called her daughter, princess. Now, if you... Preach a gospel apart from justice and compassion. You preach a gospel Jesus never preached. But if all we do is focus on justice and compassion apart from the gospel, we simply offer people a better brand of eternal misery. It's not either or, it's both and. And we know that we should never use relevance as an excuse to compromise. But I would suggest we should also never use holiness and our Christian faith as an excuse to create a subculture that we try to hide in. When we spend time with our king and we hear our king's voice and we become acquainted with our king's heart, we can't help but be a part of what our king cares about. And when you talk to our king, you'll know that he is not okay. He is not okay with the fact that millions of kids wake up every day, and don't honestly know where they're going to eat or drink. In Matthew 14, when Jesus fed the thousands of men and women and children, I would like to invite you to stand with me on the side of that hill when Jesus simply feeds the multitude and he does not give an altar call. It is okay to feed the multitudes. And when you look into the eyes of a starving child to know that sometimes the worst thing you can do 
is try to shove a religious message down their throat. Sometimes one of the best things you can do is just get down into the dirt and watch them eat. And trust me, when somebody goes out of their way to feed a starving child, at some point people begin to wonder, why do you care about me? And I can assure you that the answer is simple. It's because of who we're talking about today. It's because of our king who has invited us to be a part of a community that spends time to hear his voice, become acquainted with his heart. It's King Jesus. I'll close with this story. Um, This became very real to me when I was going to a village that I was told had never been visited by a foreigner before. We were going to end both the cycle of physical and spiritual poverty, which I would suggest is the pattern worth emulating. And uh, it was hot, and uh, we were lugging a lot of equipment. We were on the side of a volcano in the middle of nowhere. And um, we're walking up the side of the volcano, and honestly, I thought I, I was hallucinating because we came up over the side of the hill, and there it was, this little young boy whose body was emaciated. You could tell he did not eat very often or very well. At Feed One, we don't just feed kids, we're into nutrition. Because you can feed kids, but if you do not give them nutrition and if you do not give them deworming, you can actually cause their stomachs to blow up and they die when they're not used to a caloric intake. So we don't just feed kids. We have scientists, we have nutritionists, we, we think about nutrition, we give them deworming, we, we take into account all of that. We want to end the cycle of physical and spiritual poverty. I see this young boy standing by the road, and he had this little homemade wooden table, and on top of the table were glass bottles of Coca-Cola, and a banner was stretched across the, the road on the side of a volcano. It was a Coca-Cola banner. Now, I don't know about you, but I love Coca-Cola. There's nothing better than an ice-cold Coke in a glass bottle with a bag of salty peanuts on a summer day. It's one of my favorite things. And I remember thinking, so we're going to a village on the side of a volcano that has never had anyone from outside of their village visit before. And this was my thought. How in the world did the Coke guy get here before the gospel? And so because I'm a geek and I love to read and research, I decided to research. And here's what I found. If you would have been alive in 1886, in the month of May, and lived in Atlanta, Georgia, you would have had an opportunity to purchase one of the first bottles of Coca-Cola. In the first year that Coke existed, they sold, watch this, 25 bottles of Coke. I read recently that today they sell over 1 billion drinks a day. 25 bottles of Coke in the first year, and I also found out that supposedly they invested $70 to cover their expenses. They only brought in $50 in revenue. For those of you that didn't pay attention ever in math class, when you spend more than you take in, it's a bad business model. And Coca-Cola limped along as an organization for a few decades, and in the early 20th century, Coke actually was about to go bankrupt. And before, rather than folding everything and terminating uh, their, their business strategy, a young CEO named Robert stood in front of 
this small group of employees and he made one statement. And that one statement is exactly why Coke got to this village before we did. And it was this statement. Robert said, it is my desire that in my generation, everybody would have a taste of Coke before they die. I don't know about you, but it makes me wonder if Jesus would have entrusted his gospel to Coke, how different the world would be. 94% of the world recognizes Coca-Cola's name and brand, and still 40%, from what I can find, have never had an accurate representation of the gospel of the Jesus we've talked about today. That's not okay. It doesn't mean we need to be embarrassed. Actually, I'm encouraged because I think if one person who's passionate about a soft drink can reach 94% of the world in less than 150 years, how much more a community of people like you and me who simply come into our king's chamber and spend time with the king and listen to the king's voice and resonate with the heartbeat of our King, how much more through the power of the Holy Spirit can we do? It is my desire, and if I could be so bold as to speak on behalf of our president and founder, Hal Donaldson, at Convoy of Hope, for those of us who serve on the Convoy of Hope Feed One team, it is all of our desire that in our generation, we will end the cycle of both physical and spiritual poverty. And we believe it is possible. And it's possible. <clears throat> it is possible because of the one we've spent time this morning talking about. It's possible because of Jesus. But it's also possible because of the called out ones. The church. People like you. Who understand that at the base of a rock called poverty, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will never, ever prevail against it. To God be the glory. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I want to ask you uh, a quick question before your pastor comes. If you're in the room today and you would say, you know what, Heath, I have no idea. When you talked about Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know him. I'm not asking if you've been baptized in water. I'm not asking you if you attend church. I think attending church is a great idea, and you should. I think being baptized in water is a great idea, and it's a commandment, but that's not enough to save you. Jesus is not the preferred way. He is not the most relevant way. He is not the American way. The Bible says Jesus is the only way. I'm not asking if you're a good person. I'm asking, do you know him? I'm asking, has Jesus changed your life? And if Jesus can rescue me, he can rescue anybody. Today, do you, would you be willing to be vulnerable and say, you know what, I don't have a clue who Jesus really is, but today, whether you're listening, you're watching, or you're here in this auditorium with me today, you would say, you know what, that's me. I want to ask Jesus to change my life. I want you to know that in a moment, pastor's going to come. And pastor's going to give you instruction. He's going to pray with you. And today, the free gift of salvation is yours if you're in the room. I want you to know you don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to be embarrassed that Jesus will take you as you are. And because he loves you, he won't leave you the way you are. 
But secondly, I want to ask you a question. Would you be willing to be open and vulnerable with God today to say yes to God before you even know what the question is? Would you consider being radically generous in your gift to feed one? Would you consider partnering with God? Would you allow God to invite you into the king's chamber and listen to the heartbeat of God for those who are poor and suffering, for those who are hurting, for those who literally do not have access to food and water? Would you consider being summoned as a member of the global community called the church into the king's chamber to hear how God really feels about those who are hurting and to be a part of the solution. And if that's you, just in your heart before God right now, just give God a simple yes. God, I'm willing. God, I'm open. God, I will partner with you. And now, God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you are the pattern worth emulating. I want to thank you that, Jesus, you are perfect theology. And I ask you, God, to take each and every one of us by the hand and take us to the side of the hill as you look at the multitudes, as in your heart you are moved with compassion because people simply don't have enough food to eat. And I pray that you will perform the same miracle you did a few thousand years ago. But rather than doing it through the gift of a little boy, do it through our gift today. To God be the glory. I ask it humbly and boldly in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.